0: Now for tonight, we're going to start off with Skip Clark from Gunkwit, Maine. He was signed up to tell a story last month on the theme of gratitude, but he was unable to make it because of a major Thanksgiving snowstorm. So he's here to tell his story tonight. Skip considers himself to be a retired businessman who, at heart, has always been a wanderer-adventurer, He sometimes writes of his adventures like sailing through gale storms on an old wooden boat from Maine to Cuba, singing Sinatra songs in local nightclubs, and completing seven full marathons. Tonight, Skip's story is about a chance meeting he had long ago while training for a run and why so many years later, it still resonates as an experience for which he is grateful. His story is titled, A Lesson in Courage. Skip.
1: Thank you. Most of my life has been spent summers and then full-time in Ogunquit Maine, but I'm now a happy resident of Portsmouth. So, yeah.
0: Welcome to town.
1: A lesson in courage. It has been 10 years since I met Matthew, and I knew him for less than an hour. In the first 5 minutes of that brief encounter, he gave me a lifetime message that returns again and again when I listen to a complaining friend or think to feel sorry for myself. I had just begun my favorite five-mile training course along Ogunquit Beach, Maine. A beautiful beach at any time, it is a runner's dream at ebb tide. Wide, flat, hard-packed sand, smooth yet resilient, easy on the feet and back free of traffic, and perfect for aerobic daydreaming. And then I was interrupted by an annoying young man running alongside of me in a most strange manner. At first he was close by, nearly brushing my shoulder, then dropping behind at my heels, only to come charging ahead cutting in front of me so that we nearly tripped over each other. Next he began a series of half-turns, peeling off to left and right, arms extended to the side, as if imagining himself a fighter pilot, only to return again too close to my left or right shoulder. Of course he's retired, I thought, as he was oddly dressed in street shoes, argyle socks, plaid shorts and striped shirt. His hair cropped to half an inch at a time when long hair was the fashion for young men. I hoped he would soon tire of this nonsense and leave me alone, and so, joyed by the peace and exuberance of running and the wonderful beach ahead, I determined to ignore him and the irritation he caused and avoided the temptation to shoo him away like a pesky fly. But that was not to be. We'd been running together a half-mile when he abandoned his serpentine route and settled into a steady course, "'by my side. "'You've got a real good pace going there,' he spoke. "'I was startled. "'His voice was articulate and deep, "'not at all what I had expected. "'He was intelligent and certainly older "'than I had surmised in my dismissing him "'from my mind as a childish nuisance. "'Thank you,' I said, and we ran on in silence. "'The young man was staring straight ahead into nothingness.' This is very odd, I thought, until, glancing to examine him more closely, the awareness came to me. "'You're blind!' I exclaimed. "'Yes, almost totally,' the young man responded. "'Why didn't you speak sooner? Is there anything I can do to help?' I asked. "'It would be best if you ran on my right side. I'll hear your feet over the sound of the surf,' he said. And so we were off to finish the five miles.' I learned his name was Matthew, age 25, blind since his premature birth. Ironically, just months before the medical profession discovered that premature infants placed in oxygen tents were losing sight due to damaged retinas. He explained that shortly after his birth, doctors had learned to regulate the amount of oxygen administered to infants in incubators. Yet seemingly, the pitifully tragic timing surrounding his loss of sight, had not left him cynical, nor deterred him from becoming a serious runner. And on this day he had the urge to train and the need to share a pair of healthy eyes, and by moving front and back and off to the sides he had been attuning his ears to the sound of my footfall, seeking me out in the darkness until finding his permanent place by my side. As we ran on, Matthew spoke of his goal to compete in the Special Olympics and described his personal winter outdoor record of 524-mile unassisted. By sweeping his head from side to side, he was able to distinguish the course of the dark running track from the snowbanks on either side. Using only a residue of peripheral light, he could compete. We laughed at the irony of a runner praying for snow as much as a skier. Our conversation turned to the thrill of running and the certainty that for each of us it would be a lifelong pursuit. He complimented me on my conditioning, that I could set a comfortably fast pace for him, though twenty years his senior. I, of course, was astounded that he was running at all. During our run he kept his knees high and planted his feet squarely, while I forewarned him of colonies of beach pebbles to avoid and undulating areas of sand to cross, where shallow rivulets of tide still flowed. Aside from those considerations, we were simply as any two runners at play, sharing the fun of exercise and the knowledge that our healthy bodies would help our minds endure whatever vicissitudes of life might come our way. Then all too soon it was over, We had turned at Moody Point, where the beach is interrupted by glacial boulders strewn in remnant piles, and halfway on our return we came upon Matthew's parents continuing their walk. They were pleased with his chance for a workout, yet uncertain of my reaction to his uninvited leap onto the path of a total stranger. I assured them that the pleasure was mine, and after brief introductions and goodbyes, I was off to finish my run and ponder the memory of a most unusual meeting on Ogunquit Beach. The true significance of that occasion, however, would not crystallize for me until another summer, much, much later. It was not merely the experience of meeting a blind runner, or that he had trained himself to run an unassisted outdoor mile. It was his demonstration of courage and fearlessness, to leave his parents' side and rush along the black beach, assisted only by ear and the sound of a stranger's footfall that moves me to this day. Far beyond my first image of him in mismatched clothing was a very special man, daring to challenge his darkness and follow a foreign footstep. Without knowledge of my gender, age, or disposition, he responded, to the sound of a kindred spirit and took rank beside another runner. Recently I was once again running on my favorite beach. My runs this year were all the more important, since I had experienced a great personal loss and was feeling discouraged. Lonely with the personal lost love and disappointment in business, I was living in the nadir of my existence. This year I needed the vigorous activity more than ever to combat my depression and ennui. It was then that I was reminded of Matthew and his courage and determination to succeed. His blindness lent perspective to my troubles, for I could run unassisted whenever I wished. Self-pity and complaint faded. I reminded myself that alongside Matthew's circumstances, my troubles were minimal and absurd by comparison. My pace quickened as I passed the last summer cottage, marking the beginning of a pristine mile of preserved dunes bordering the beach. I began to entertain fresh new plans for my life. The memory of the lesson of courage and daring by a younger man less fortunate than I was the perfect antidote to my doldrums. My past adversity... "'must become a benefit to my future "'and not a license to wallow in what might have been. "'The fine, dry sand sang under my feet as I moved on. "'Sandpipers darted and fled the oncoming breakers with me. "'Leaping over mounds of crisping rockweed, "'I felt the heat of an August sun, "'and my body coated over with cooling perspiration "'as I ran faster.' 200 yards to the end of the beach. Could I still do it? Certainly, I must. I must sprint the last 200 yards and peel off at the finish, straight toward the oncoming surf to hurl my heated body into the frigid, awakening main waters. Renewed. Thank you for the lesson, Matthew, and good luck wherever you are.
0: you next up we have tammy truax she's a lifelong new englander except for the three years that she lived in europe which is the setting for her tale tonight tammy lived in portsmouth for many years where she's been a participant and a strong proponent of all things poetic recently resettled in elliott maine tammy's now or has is a writer a novelist poet blogger, newspaper columnist, teacher, and museum docent. All of her work lets her indulge in creative storytelling. The story she'll share with us tonight is titled, New Year's Eve in Paris. (laughs)
2: Temmie? Thank you. So this is the story of how I ended the year in 1990. At the time, I was a young married woman, and my husband and I were both civil servants working for the Department of Defense and had recently been sent to Germany to live and work. And there were two things about that coming New Year's Eve that were significant to me at the time. One was that it was going to occur on a Saturday night. I was still young enough to think that when a holiday landed on a Saturday, that it was a divine message to do something particularly special, maybe a little wilder than usual. (laughs) And two, I intended to conceive my first child in the coming year, so I was you know still young enough to think I could plan and control the future, and I was sure that it would be my last childless New Year's Eve, so I wanted to make it particularly memorable At the time, as you all know, the u s military overseas was a huge and thriving thing, and there were many little parasitic businesses that surrounded. American military installations overseas, and one of those was travel tours. So I popped into one of these shops to see what they had cooking for the coming New Year's Eve, and I booked us a a weekend in Paris. These bus tours were really wonderful. You climbed right on, on board this luxury vehicle, and you didn't have to worry about anything. Just keep track of your passport, and everything else was taken care of for you until you got back home again. So on that particular trip, we had been blessed with an incredibly competent guide whose name was Guido. And I very rudely nicknamed him Guido the Guido right away (laughs) because I was young and arrogant. (laughs) Um, So on Saturday, very early on that New Year's Eve, Guido packed us all on the bus and took us to dinner at a wonderful little restaurant that we never, of course, would have found on our own. And instead of paying really close attention to the once-in-a-lifetime meal we were eating. We paid a great deal of attention to the copious quantities of French wine and champagne we were consuming. We were a group of about 12 Americans. (laughs) So that was a a lovely um, meal, and then Guido gathered us all up, put us back on the bus, and brought us us to the early show at the Moulin Rouge. That was a lot of fun, too. I would say the men in the group enjoyed it. the topless dancing more than the women in the group. But it was really fun and got got our group um, more lively than we we had even been before. And Guido got us out of there, very patiently put us all back on the bus and brought us back to our hotel. The rest of the evening was going to be celebrated in the streets, Parisian style, which culminates in a spectacular fireworks display, of course, over the city at midnight. If we wanted to participate, um, in that street festivities, of course, we wanted to participate. <laughs> so before sending us to our rooms to, you know, um, freshen up or, or whatever, um, Guido gave us a very kept us on the bus and gave us a very stern lecture. He went on and on about how it was going to be very dangerous later, and that women especially had to show extreme caution, not wear any purses, not wear any loose jewelry, and not wear any skirts. I was not intimidated in the least by these warnings. To be honest, I have always had a bit of trouble taking direction. But at the time, I didn't think that there was anything, any culture anywhere in the world could teach me about rowdy partying. (laughs) After all, I was from New Hampshire. (laughs) So we went up to our rooms And I immediately, without giving it any thought at all, changed into a little purple skirt that I'd brought for this occasion. I did decide, since it was a bit nippy out, not New Hampshire cold, but just a bit nippy out, I decided that I would wear two pairs of hose that night with my little skirt and I had some black boots on. So we had a little bit more from the minibar there in the room, packed our pockets with some more refreshments to go, (laughs) and (laughs) went back outside. And Guido put most of our group back on the bus and drove us for a very short ride to the center of the city. And he parked not far from the Arc de Triomphe, which was all lit up and looking very magical. And we knew it was going to be a really beautiful night. So we got off the bus and headed straight for the action. Not one of us bothering to wonder why Guido was choosing to stay right on the bus. (laughs) There were lots of people in the streets, but it was not unlike a crowd we would have run into back home. We had no idea how many thousands, tens of thousands of people would pour out into those streets in the next hour. And the more people came, the more frenzied the crowd became. It was very loud, people yelling Bon Bonani Bon and firecrackers going off all over the place. I remember watching as a crazy old couple attempted to drive their little French car up the Champs-Élysées as if it were a normal evening and that was something smart to do in a group of young men gathered around their car and started rocking it back and forth back and forth until I really was afraid they were going to just throw the car right over and I could see the terrified faces on these elegantly dressed old people inside it was pretty scary it was as close to melee as I had ever experienced before or since we were having a blast but the potential danger really was palpable in the air you could feel it so it's getting closer and closer to midnight the people are getting wilder and wilder as every minute goes by and it was about that time that someone in our area lit an m16 in a bottle now this had been going on all along and we all knew of course to back up a respectful distance and we did and this particular one was close enough that we all backed around into a circle And i was looking directly down at the bottle with the rocket in it when some drunk man stumbled out of the crowd and gave the bottle a sloppy kick. That sent the bottle, and the rocket still inside it, whirling across the avenue. I watched it twirling. I heard it hissing. And out of about a million people, I could tell that that bottle was coming directly from me. (laughs) (laughs) Then it stopped. Then the rocket launched. and made a sudden upward trajectory as if it opposed my baby making plans it flew it flew between my legs and up my miniskirt and then it went off a quarter stick of dynamite was exploding in my little purple skirt fortunately i did still have pretty quick reflexes and i was wearing gloves i hiked up my little skirt mooned the city of lights and did the wildest jig I've ever done while flailing my gloved hands around between my legs crazily, and unfortunately also letting out of my mouth fly a string of the ugliest American obscenities <laughs> Paris has ever heard. <laughs> and in the end, I only received a minor burn on my thigh. And it was really the two pairs of hose that saved me from serious harm that night, and my mad dancing skills, of course. <laughs> I was very proud of my burn and kept showing it off to anybody who would look. And the only one who wasn't duly impressed was poor Guido. (laughs) Thank you for listening.
0: Thanks, Amy. But before I introduce Michael, I just have to ask a question. Uh, Did Guido know about the danger of skirts? Because often
2: things fly up like that? He didn't explain what the danger was, and I think there are a great many possible unforeseen and unwanted things that could happen to you. Wow,
0: that is a very unique unwanted thing.
2: <laughs>
0: Next up, Michael Lang. He is a local writer and storyteller from Durham, New Hampshire, New Hampshire, right? Yes, okay. Who enjoys sharing tales of all sorts with audiences of all ages. For nearly a decade, Michael was a ropes course facilitator and wilderness guide, but now he works through his small business, the Coyotes Inkwell, to educate and entertain with fables, folktales, and myths from all around the world, as well as his own fictional and nonfiction stories. Tonight, Michael's nonfiction piece is a story about the power of storytelling, titled, Waking Christmas. Michael.
3: The words spoken at a funeral, the stories told at a wake, often come too late. What a wondrous thing it would be to sit there in the front row of the church and hear those words said, or to sit around the table the night after, tell some of those stories, perhaps even raise up a glass, and lead a few verses with friends and family. What a thing that might be. We don't always get the choice of how or when we'll leave this world. But we do choose what we leave behind. Our footprints on the world. The memories that will be passed down. The stories that will be told. It was ten years ago, on Christmas Day. The entire world seemed to be entangled in holiday hustle and bustle. Even the big white house on Highland Avenue could not escape the Christmas chaos. The Donahue family kitchen was a bedlam of commotion. There were knives chopping through potatoes and carrots, cutting boards rattling, pots and pans clattering and clanging. The entire kitchen was filled with the smells of holiday baking and cooking. There was, of course, the usual debate that goes with any such orchestration. If the ham went in the oven at three, what time do the potatoes have to go on what bowl will we use for the green beans? Where's the bread knife? Has anyone seen Grandma's bread knife? Somehow, the jigsaw puzzle that is Christmas dinner always seemed to come together every year. But that year, one piece was missing. That year, Grandpa was not sitting in his favorite chair, nor was he standing in the doorway, supervising the chaos from a safe distance. Now, three days before, Grandpa had been admitted to the intensive care unit in Needham Hospital. And though no one had said it, we all knew that Grandpa was not coming home. That Christmas, in addition to the usual traditions, we all took turns in couples and small groups making the trip across town to visit Grandpa to share what we could of the holiday with him. When it was my turn to go with my dad across town, stepping out into the evening chill was actually quite refreshing, leaving the chaos of the house behind. Crossing town, crossing through the lobby of that hospital, up to the second floor. Two of my cousins were already there. David, Dr. Dave, and his sister Karen were already sitting by Grandpa's bed as my dad and I parted the shroud of curtains. As we entered, my dad said, "'How you doing, John?' It was as though we had just walked into the den on Highland Ave and disturbed the ball game. Ordinarily, Grandpa would be clambering out of his chair, his hand outstretched. I could hear his words, even though he said nothing. What do you say, Mike? I never knew how I was supposed to answer that question or that greeting. It always came out sort of a, hi, Grandpa, how you doing? And those were the words that fell out of my mouth that day. Grandpa said nothing. He just lay in bed a Frail skeleton of what he had once been. but he could hear us. and he, there was a twinkle in his eye as we spoke to him. We all sat there, not sure what we were supposed to say, what we were supposed to do. But then one of us broke the silence. Perhaps it was me, perhaps it was Dave. perhaps it was Karen. But finally, someone said, "Grandpa, grandpa, do you remember?" And that was how it started do you remember? And with that, stories began to flow out. Grandpa, grandpa, do you remember when you were little and and great-grandma used to give you a quarter for the train and you would, you would go to Yankee Stadium, you'd climb over the chain-link fence. It, it was a dime each way and you'd keep the extra nickel. There was a twinkle in grandpa's eye. He did remember, even though he couldn't say anything to us. Grandpa had taken that train so often. He was the only Yankees fan in the greater Boston area. Or at least the only one who would admit it. But before you cringe too much, consider this. My grandfather was born in 1919. That was the last year that Babe Ruth played for the Sox before that epic and horrible decision to trade him away. By the time my grandfather was 10 years old, climbing over a chain-link fence... He was witnessing some of the greatest legends in baseball history play some of the greatest games of their careers. And a lot of those players were playing for the Yankees. When Grandpa grew older and was playing baseball, he was the only left-handed player on his team. His teammates would often call him lefty. And though I never developed Grandpa's love for the game of baseball... I did play with a group of medieval reenactors fighting with wooden swords and metal armor. And there was always a smile hidden behind the grill of my helmet when someone would look at me and say, Hey, lefty, get over here. Grandpa. Grandpa, do you remember when you spoke to the president on the phone? Do you remember when when you were working at the Library of Congress and and the president of the United States called? I nearly fell off my chair. That was the line that he would always say every time he told that story, without fail. And there would always be a smile on his face. He was so proud that he had spoken to the President of the United States on the telephone. But consider this. This was no ordinary President of our era. This was no President whose name was tied to controversies or scandals or corruptions. No, no. This was the President who had brought the Great Depression to an end. This was the president who had guided our country through one of the worst wars to ever happen on this earth. This was none other than President Franklin Roosevelt. Well, this is John Donahue, sir. How, How can I help you, Mr. President, sir? It turned out that the president was calling because his stamp collection was in storage and was being moved from the Library of Congress to the National Archives and he wanted to make sure everything was all right. Perhaps that's the reason that every Christmas morning, when we would arrive bright and early at Grandma and Grandpa's house, an hour and a half away from our home, every year, there'd be a set of packages underneath the tree, one for each of his grandchildren. And inside each of those packages was an identical large green book that contained a copy of every stamp that had been printed that year. After all, If stamp collecting was a worthy hobby for the President of the United States, surely it was a worthy hobby for John Donahue's grandchildren. Grandpa, Grandpa, do you remember when I was really little, Grandpa, and I would sit at your desk and pound on your typewriter? It was one of my most fondest memories. Sitting at Grandpa's desk and tapping the keys of his typewriter. The click, 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 the chug of the gears inside of it, that bell that would chime to let you know it was time to crank it back to the start. When I was older, and actually knew how to string letters together into words, I would gather all my stuffed animals on Grandpa's desk and write stories about them, faraway places that existed only in my imagination. And then I'd read those stories and bore Grandma and Grandpa with all the things that my teddy bear and my pound puppies had been doing there. Far away world. Years after Grandpa passed away, when Grandma moved out of the house on Highland Ave and the house was sold, Grandpa's desk came to live in my apartment. And it's still where I do all of my writing. And that Irish blessing that hung in its frame on Grandpa's wall still hangs over that desk, right beside my very first letter of rejection. <laughs> that night, in the intensive care unit, the stories flowed out like so many drops of whiskey. Laughter filled the entire floor when a nurse would enter to check Grandpa's vital signs; she'd be re- welcomed as family. When my mother arrived later that evening, she could not believe the boisterous laughter coming out of Grandpa's room. It was a rollicking, reeling ruckus, a celebration of life. That night, Grandpa attended his own wake he heard all the stories that he had told us all the things we were going to remember so wherever you might be tonight whether here in the studio with us or listening somewhere across the world in the words of my Irish ancestry may the road rise to meet you may the wind be always at your back the sun shine warm upon your face The rains fall gently on your fields until we meet again, my friend. May God hold you in the palm of his hand, Waking Christmas. (laughs) Thank you very much, everybody.
0: Thank you, Michael. Hi. Hi. It's a lovely thing, indeed. Amy Antonucci is coming up. Amy? Is our announcer for True Tales Radio and a longtime volunteer for WSCA. She lives on a small farm in Barrington, New Hampshire. This is the third time she's told a story right here, and we're happy to hear another one. The story she'll share tonight was inspired by last month's show on gratitude, but it also includes themes of endings and beginnings. It's titled I Can Walk. Amy? Thanks. For
4: I can walk. When I was born, of course, I couldn't walk. Or even crawl or sit up or turn over, I've been told. My mother could walk, however, and carry me around. I don't remember this, but I have seen pictures. As time went on, I learned to move around by myself. By the time my brother was born, two and a half years after me, I was moving, walking, even trying out some running, I think. He, of course, couldn't walk yet. And it was around this time that my mother started having trouble walking as well. It wasn't all that noticeable at first, and my brother got his feet under him and was seriously into the running and bumping into things phase before it was really undeniable that something was wrong with my mother. This was in the 1970s, before MRI tests, and it took a while before the diagnosis was made that my mother had chronic progressive multiple sclerosis. This is a neurological disease, autoimmune, that causes a person to lose the ability to control their own body and movements. And so... As my brother and I grew into our abilities, my mother slowly lost hers. I think it made it harder for her to have us gaining ground while she was steadily losing it. She was incredibly frustrated by her body and her life and struggled to find peace with her circumstances. In my own early memories of her, she is already putting a hand out to use a wall or chair to help her from place to place. Then came canes. After that, we moved on to various types of wheelchairs and scooters. Her first scooter had the brand name of Amigo, and we called it her Amigo. I remember her bringing in cookies to my fourth grade class in the Amigo and explaining to the kids that it wasn't actually a toy that they could get a turn to use but that she needed it, because her legs didn't work right. She was able to drive until about a year before I got my own license and took over her old car. This was also before the Americans with Disabilities Act, adopted in 1990. There were fewer curb cuts, handicapped parking spaces, or accessible buildings. She rode quite a few, I should say we rode, quite a few really scary service elevators had very bumpy rides over stairs and the occasional curb that we just could not find another way around. There were a lot of funny moments, but it was also very undignified and sometimes even demeaning for her. I wanted to be able to carry my mother and all her problems like she carried me when I was a baby. I wanted to bring her what she needed before she asked for it and wished I was strong enough to pick her up when she fell. But I wasn't. If I could have made a trade, her legs to work instead of mine, I probably would have done it. When none of that worked, I walked out of there at 18 years old, left for college and a new life on my own. I carried more than my own baggage when I walked out, but at least I was able to walk. One extra burden I carried was the knowledge that as a daughter of a woman with MS, I had an increased risk of getting the disease. That was in the back of my mind always. When I fell in love with dancing, first contra dancing, then circle dancing, a part of me already feared the possible loss of it. The same when I took up yoga and when I decided to do work that was physically demanding, farming. Despite that fear of loss, maybe even a bit because of it, I didn't give up on dancing or yoga or farming. Instead, I leaned into them while I still could. I made sure to dance because I could and because my mother couldn't. My mother died at the age of 70 when I was 38 years old. She was ready to be done with a body that hadn't listened well to her for so many years. At least that's what she said and what she'd been saying for years. And I still showed no signs of MS myself. Since the disorder is most commonly diagnosed between 20 and 40, the likelihood that I would get it was fading. So my fear of MS has lessened, My guilt that I can walk while my mother couldn't has also lessened. What has grown and I have cultivated is gratitude for what I can do that neither my mother nor a lot of other people can. I've actually had quite a few health problems and physical issues that have slowed me down infuriatingly for my compared to what how quick I'd like to go let's just say but I can walk I deal with chronic pain but I can garden and I can chase my goats when they escape I've had surgeries and as has everyone heartbreaks and losses but I know that I can still dance Thank you.
0: Thanks, Amy. That was good.
4: (laughs) Really good. Good story. So now I'm going to introduce to you our next storyteller because it's our introducer as well. So, Pat Spaulding, MC of True Tales Radio, is a writer and storyteller from Rye, New Hampshire. For over thirty years she wrote and told stories for grown ups alongside her puppetry career with Haypenny Theatre. So that right? That's right. Yeah. Pat is a skier, a camper, and a procrastinator who, while putting off other things she should be doing, likes to dance. Uh-huh. Excellent. A local in the seacoast since the early eighties, Pat likes being a part of the WSCA community and loves being a majorette with the leftist marching band. Her story tonight is titled, Ballroom Dance Lessons. Thank you.
0: So it was 2006. Dad spotted a notice in the Herald about ballroom dance lessons. Want to sign up? He asked. Probably something I can still do. I was getting divorced. Dad had terminal cancer. Life was not the greatest. But we were making the best of it trying to support each other through these major life changes with as much grace as possible. So, sure, I said, why not? It was the night of our first lesson. Is that what you're wearing tonight, Dad? Yeah, what about it? Well, isn't it a little, um, casual? I wanted to say shabby, but I held back. Oh, you think I care about appearances? Well, true. Dad's face was kind of crunked up from surgery. One eye watered, his nose ran. A Kleenex was ever ready to dab both, and he couldn't hear but out of one ear. Still, there was no reason to wear a shirt with a frayed collar underneath a stretched-out gray cotton pullover that looked more like thermal underwear than a sweater. Oh, how about your brown sweater, Dad? Nope, I like this gray one better. Oh, come on, Dad. I don't want to get into a fashion argument with you before our first lesson. Well, oh, i just start one then. <laughs> he was right. We were going to be partners in ballroom dance. Dad was going to lead. I was going to follow. So I let him make his own fashion choice while I outfitted myself in a typical cloak of middle age invisibility, dark slacks, black top, and a big scarf. Luis, our dance instructor, spoke with some sort of indefinable foreign accent. Everyone, stand in line opposite your partner. Men on one side, women on the other. What do you say? asked Dad. He told us to stand in a line with the men facing the women. I had to interpret and repeat every single one of Luis's instructions into Dad's good ear. Keep the frame, said Louise. Arms up, open, lift, lift from the center. Posture, face your partner, face forward, not at your feet. Lift, lift, look up. What? (laughs) It's about posture and lift, Dad. We're supposed to keep our arms held up and open like, like we're hugging an oversized beach ball. And look straight ahead. I demonstrated while Dad complained, Oh, it's hard holding my arms up like this. Well, nobody said ballroom dance lessons would be easy. I reached around his back to tuck in the label sticking out from underneath his gray sweater. It was thermal underwear. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Dad, he looked so darn gray and dusty. At 88 years old, he was clearly the oldest, shortest guy here by about... 30 years and one foot. And he, I easily blended in with this group, was hardly noticeable. You know, this middle-aged crowd of recently showered, shaved, and freshly scented dancers. But Dad, Dad stood out. There was another dancer who also stood out in this crowd. Her long, dark hair was pulled back, From high cheekbones, she carried herself with impeccable posture. A flouncy skirt flared over the knees of her shapely legs, which were shown off by five-inch stilettos that raised her height to over six feet tall. The open buttons of her snugly fitting cardigan sweater displayed the rise of two perfect breasts. The milky smooth skin of her upper chest, the elegant line of her long neck, the cheekbones, the hair, the height demanded admiration. Her own, especially, (laughs) as she stood studying her reflection in the bank of mirrors, mirrors on the wall. Let's just call her Barbie. Dad and I followed Luis's instructions as best we could. Forward side together, back side together, forward side together, stop. Now, men, stay where you are. All women, step to your right and change partners. I stepped to the right into the arms of a nice-looking man who smelled like fresh ironing. Throughout the dance, he continued to whisper Over my head, forward, side, together, back, side, together. He was a nice guy, just trying to learn the steps. When Barbie stepped to the right, she wasn't so lucky. (laughs) (laughs) She got dad. I watched her reaction as he moved toward her, arms held in frame position, ready to wrap one around the small of her back and draw her in. She looked down upon his scruffy, wispy-haired head with clear disdain. Rather than resting her hand on his shoulder, she held it lightly above it, leaving about a half inch of airspace between her palm and the fabric of Dad's thermal underwear. (laughs) Barbie let the fingertips of her other hand drape toward his without really touching that either. Oh, Dad, I thought, why didn't I lobby harder for the brown sweater? You look so damn old and shabby. Paired up with this beautiful, elegant woman, you must feel self-conscious and out of place. That's what was going on in my head. Not Dad's. Dad's attitude was fine. He was a guy. And as far as he was concerned, he was doing a passable basic waltz step, Lined up nose level to the V-point of Barbie's open cardigan sweater, the scenery was just fine. <laughs> Later, he would tell me, Well, where else was I supposed to look? I'm not supposed to look down at my feet. If I tried to look up at her face, it would have tipped over backwards. <laughs> Everyone, return to your original partner's. Dad and I struggled with a crossover step until we got into an audible argument on the dance floor. When it was time to switch partners again, we were both glad to be rid of the other. This time, I danced under the chin of a barrel chested bald man who chewed cinnamon gum and wore his rayon shirt untucked. We never exchanged a word, but he was a very smooth dancer who led with consistency and was easy to follow. Then Barbie floated into the vicinity, and my barrel-chested partner became quite animated. Hello, he said, and they began to chat over my shoulder. And something very awkward happened. My partner was dancing with Barbie. That's what I noticed first. Second, I noticed that I was standing in the middle of the dance floor, arms still held in frame position, holding An imaginary beach ball. How did this happen? He must've cut in on Barbie's partner, but where was that guy? I looked around to see if I'd missed the last instruction. Maybe somebody was headed my way. Nope, everyone else waltzed on. Even dad was paired up with a woman who smiled at him. I was glad of that, but felt so invisible and abandoned by Mr. Rayon. He was not a gentleman, but he was a good dancer. Mr. Rayon's transition from me to Barbie had been so smooth that I was unaware of it when it happened. (laughs) Even standing there empty-handed in the middle of the dance floor, I couldn't help but be sort of impressed. And now that was good technique. As soon as the song ended, I looked for the safety of my father. I was traded in for an upgrade, I told him. What? (laughs) I said this ballroom dance scene is brutal. Uh, I can't hear, can't hear the music, can't seem to keep the rhythm in my head. Neither can I, Dad. Maybe we should just count the steps out loud. But the tedious repetition of one, two, three, four, five, six just deadened my dancing spirit. When the lesson was over, I was done. I figured Dad was done, too, and expected him to skedaddle for the door as fast as his bandy little legs would carry him. After all, he couldn't hear the instructions. He couldn't hear the music. We couldn't get the dance steps right without continuous argument. Dad was clearly the oldest guy on the dance floor and kept having to dab his eye with a Kleenex. He must have felt self conscious and way outside of his comfort zone. But he lingered by the coat rack, checking out the women, watching the men help them into their coats, watching our group leave and the next one arrive. Both of us noticed that Mr. Rayon and Barbie continued their chat on the dance floor. Well, they must have signed up for the samba lessons, too, said Dad. Maybe we can try that one the next time. The next time? (laughs) (laughs) Then he held up my coat. A gentleman's gesture. And as I slipped my arms into its sleeves, he asked, Why didn't we do this sooner? I still hold that question. Why didn't we do this sooner? I hold it right here in the empty space that once was filled with my dancing partner, my dad. you. Mm-hmm.